is All in Your Head, a podcast about you, me, and anxiety, where we talk about mental health, life, and the newest addition to our life, Beepop. Beepop is a family member that we haven't talked about too I much. I know. You guys think we just adopt things left and right. And we do. And we do. We're givers. And this guy is a special member in our family. He doesn't take up a lot of space. He doesn't ask for much. He weighs between four pounds to five pounds after he's eaten something. <laughs> he's just making up that number, and I don't know if that's <laughs> accurate at all. Yeah, his name's Beep Up. He's a little noisy sometimes. He's a very vocal boy. Surprisingly vocal. He just kind of wanders around the house. Wanders around. He, I would say he bumps into things often and he loves to hump our lamp. Yeah, he does get stuck on the, ham- the lamp legs. If you haven't figured it out, Beepop is a little robot vacuum that we purchased right around the time uh, Bentley came into our lives. Mm-hmm. And let's just say Beepop is my favorite member in this family. I I think we actually maybe talked Sorry, about... Sorry, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we talked about Beepop before, but we called him Dobby. But then today I was I just said it, Beepop, in passing, and then I was like, oh, that's a much better name. This is it. And we just he's re- a bebop. He's sure. a bebop, and we just worked. <laughs> I think bebop has been in our life these last three weeks have been a very busy time where we had people visiting. I had stuff that I was working on in our condo. There's some emergencies that arose with regarding to our condominium building, not our unit, but the whole building, um, and. Uh, Bebop came, he pulled his weight and uh, really helped us survive through this time period. You know, they talk about like therapy cats and therapy dogs, but I think we have a therapy vacuum robot. Honestly, the level of anxiety that leaves me when I sit on the couch or am doing something else that I can't vacuum at the moment is just so refreshing. I just feel yeah. like a new person when I see little Bebop working himself around the house. I honestly feel like if we put googly eyes on that little vacuum and gave it like a little smiley face, I would really like be closely bonded. I would say I have towed Bebop <laughs> and <laughs> sometimes evil this is... will come into the house and we'll find the vacuum. Like if its battery runs low or it gets tangled in something, it'll just be stuck randomly in the room and he will be like, Oh, come on, I'll take you back to your home i have said at one point this just shows this is pretty (laughs) this is intense um going into the room and i was feeling so happy seeing bebop working that i told him he was a good boy (laughs) it's hard not to be like oh good boy (laughs) yes yes We are interviewing Jace Decker Mm -hmm. in this interview. Jace is an old friend of both of ours Mm -hmm. who we actually uh, attended the same church where we grew up. And um, we've kind of stayed connected over the years. And now he is a mental health therapist. Yes. Um, So we interview him, get his perspective on things. And I think it's an interview that you guys should enjoy. It is so interesting to hear someone talk about, like, 
the process of becoming like a therapist or counselor and the kind of school he's had to do and hear more of like the theories and because he has kind of a psych background it it, it was really awesome it's very fascinating it's interesting too because i think jace denny mealy go i want to be a mental health therapist so it's interesting to see how does someone become a mental health therapist and the journey it takes um, as they help then other people mm-hmm. um, find and figure out life. Yes, and he's worked in a ton of different places, which uh, like just a bunch of different circumstances, which I also thought was very interesting. So we won't ruin the interview anymore. We're going to let you listen to it, and we'll see you back in 45 minutes or so. So this week, we're interviewing the one and only Jace Decker. So you, what did you do your undergrad uh, yeah, yeah. So let's see. I went to Whitworth University in Spokane for undergrad. What was your degree at Whitworth? What did you end up getting? Uh, at? Yeah, so let's see. I, I, like a lot of undergrad students, didn't really know what I wanted to do when I went to undergrad. I had that millennial mentality of this is what my parents want me to do. Slash, you know, that was my mentality. And so I was just like, this is what I'm going to do. But I didn't really have a plan or really any like idea of what it all entailed until I got there. And I remember like one night, like the first night lying awake and being like, Oh man, my parents aren't coming back to pick me up tomorrow. I'm like, here. I'm like here until like winter break. This is scary. Uh, in any case, you know, like not knowing what it entailed. So I had a lot of different um, classes that I was trying to take a lot of different areas. I was trying to explore um and so i went through a couple different majors uh and then eventually ended up in psychology and um yeah it was it was really interesting the class that got me to like be more focused on psychology was forensic psychology um and i remember reading like this uh forensic book on ted bundy and like a really good college student i waited until the night before and so i stayed up reading this book about the serial killer for like six hours in one night and then like I just didn't go to sleep and I read about Ted Bundy for six hours and then I wrote a paper on it and then I went to class and then I came back and slept <laughs> so you graduate from Whitworth with your degree in yep. psychology did you then go I want to do more school or was it like did you go oh I've made a terrible mistake <laughs> I think there's a little bit of both in like oh shit I made a terrible mistake and uh like a little bit of curiosity as to like what to do next because uh, mm-hmm. little did I know when you get like a degree in a soft science your career field is great because it's super wide open but then it's also terrible because it's super wide open um, and so yeah. like my after I was done with undergrad I decided to stay up at Whitworth and pursue cooking for a little bit because I really enjoyed cooking and I had I remember that you got into that. you got into those Japanese yeah, knives. Yeah, yeah, I still have them. Um, and you know, like funny story, uh, you can spend a lot of money on some stuff, and you can spend it really fast without knowing a lot of stuff. And you're just like, oh, I'm buying the best. Mm-hmm. And then like you look back five years later, and you're like, damn, I probably was okay with just like that first initial buy of like seventy dollars. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of knives and a lot of them cost like 300 plus and I use my $70 knife all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you did that for two years or how long were you doing that? Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was up at Whitworth. I had a job at the cafeteria. 
Um, I was like the the Italian cook, so I had my own station. I did my own like recipes, more or less, and it was really really fun. Um, and like while I was doing that, I also was volunteering for this place called Rise, which was reinforcing the important the importance of support and education. Okay. Um, and so basically, it was like a bunch of Whitworth students who went to a high school and were tutors slash mentors. Uh, so I did that for like three or four months, and I was like, oh, this is really cool, and like. It was fun because I got to apply some of my psychology knowledge to yeah. like these issues that the students were dealing with. Um, and I noticed like once they got to talk to me for a little bit and I just kind of validated what they feel they were feeling or I did a, like a little bit of psychoeducation of like, oh man, yeah, it is really crappy when you really, really, really want like this other person to like you, but you also don't want your entire self-worth to be wrapped up in what other people think of you. Like that's, <laughs> that's pretty heavy. Yeah, that sucks, man. Like, what can you do about that? Oh, sure, let's talk about it. And then they'd be like, oh, man, and now this math assignment make, makes way more sense, and I'm not, like, as anxious, so I can actually think. Um, yeah. And so it was cool to see those connections happen um, and, like, be able to positively impact someone's life just by listening, hearing, and then reflecting. And I was like, I think I might want to do this. I think I'm pretty good at it. Um and so then I did like some informational interviews with the school psychologist, with the school counselor. And then at that time I was also pursuing my own counseling. So I kind of talked to my counselor about it mm-hmm. um, and like their take on school and like career trajectories and like what they liked about the job itself and what they didn't like. Um, yeah. And so I was up in Whitworth or I was up in Spokane for an additional year after I graduated. Um, yeah. And then I, didn't necessarily know really what I wanted to do. I, I took the GRE, so I was ready to apply to grad schools. Um, but then I didn't quite know if I wanted to. Uh, and then I moved back home with the plan of, like, uh, looking for some sort of, uh, like, psych-related employment to, like, further develop myself and, like, further, like, get into the field before I went into grad school. I remember I remember this period of time because I think we went and pl- played frisbee around this time because you had just yeah. moved back to Vancouver and you were trying to figure out what your what options you wanted to pursue at that time. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Like, there was a lot of frisbee throughout my life. <laughs> there still currently is. So if you throw that out there, you'll probably get a hit. Like, yeah, that's when you were playing frisbee. I'm like, yep. But as it turns out, if you just have a a bachelor's degree in psychology and like the job market is really crappy, all the people want like two plus years or they want you to have specific training um, and they don't want to give you interviews. And it's like, okay, cool. Yeah. And then, man, yeah. So personal tidbit, I got dumped pretty hard from like a two-year relationship. And I was like, fuck it, I'm going to grad school. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then I applied to the grad school program at Central Washington University for their master's of science in mental health counseling. Um, Gotcha. Yeah. And I applied like three months after the deadline and then I got in and I was like, cool. Oh. Ballsy. Yeah. I didn't know that was even what people got to do. Yeah. No, it was was pretty cool. (laughs) When you're Jay Stecker, all doors are open. Oh, no yeah, no, totally, man, totally. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, hum- this is going to be, like, my flex moment because I've never really talked that much about my GRE scores, but, like, I placed in, like, the 30th percentile on the math, which oh. is pretty terrible, but then I placed in, like, the 93rd and the 91st for the verbal reasoning and the writing portion, so I was like, cool. I guess I'm pretty good at some stuff. <laughs> 
and I'm pretty sure that's probably why I got in. Slash, maybe my essay was really good. I don't know, but I was I was kind of like I got in. I wasn't really expecting that, but cool. I guess I'm gonna go now. Probably your essay was really good if those are your GRE scores in reading and writing. I mean, yeah, you know, you know, there might be some confirmation bias or uh, something along those lines, but yeah, yeah. You remember how you did on your journey? No, it's no. all gone. It's all gone. It's just this black hole. All you gotta do is pass, yeah. like, get just a qualifying score. Yeah. I feel like a qualifying score. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I don't think you necessarily need to crush the GRE in all categories to get into grad school. Yeah, you just gotta pass it. Yeah, all I remember about that experience is it was like two hours away from Bellingham, and I had to drive back, and I got it was not supposed to be two hours, but I got stuck in traffic, and I was so frazzled. But by the time I got home, I walked into the apartment and I burst into tears. Yes. Yep. Yep. It's definitely not a very fun experience. I remember like after I got there with my GRE, I like was feeling super down in the dumps because of the math portion and like that's all I could think about of like I'm never gonna get into any school ever because I can't add like what's two plus two I don't know emotions oh, this is really resonating <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 but then like I ended up talking to somebody and it was just like super good to hear them like speak some other truth into my life in that moment because the person I was dating at the time had like been sort of sort of like shaming me for like not studying enough and like gotcha. not being good enough at math basically is kind of what it boiled down to um and i was like i don't want to talk to her about my math score she's gonna like throw that in my face and it's gonna be terrible yeah. uh and then the other person was like well you know your success and the success of other people don't need to be similar like just because no. somebody else succeeded doesn't make your success any less of a success for you. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Because it's like that whole mental journey of like, unless I'm the best, then what was the point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so you took the GRE. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. The GRE. You got into Central. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For, and now what was that degree again called? Yeah, so I got a Master's of Science in Mental Health Counseling. So that was two years of uh, coursework. With, okay. um, so we did it on a quarter basis. So we did fall, winter, spring, and then we had summer quarter. So we went to okay. school like, all year round. Um, and then uh, we had a thesis to do, but technically it was a thesis project. Um, gotcha. But yeah. Like, you could turn it into a thesis if you wanted to, and all it really mattered was, like, PhD programs would look at you a little bit more seriously. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. Oh, like, I believe Sarah had mentioned, like, oh, were you like, oh, I've made a terrible mistake, or like, yes, put me back in school. Like, my mentality each time after I've been done with school is like, hell no, never again. That was so <laughs> And then, like, I'll think I'll, like, be done for, like, a year, and I'll be like, oh, wait, I kind of like learning, and, like, I don't know, maybe mm-hmm. if I got a different degree or, like, another degree, I could do other things and do more stuff. Um, Sarah has said multiple times that if she had the opportunity, she would be in school for the rest of her life. Yeah. Me, on the other hand, get me out of school as, <laughs> as quick as possible, yeah. Did you have clinicals or any, like, field work during those two years that you had to do? Uh, or? Yeah, so we had three practicums, which is actually counseling real clients. Uh, and then we had a... I think I did like an 1,000 hour internship with like 244 hours of direct client contact hours. 
Um, wow. Yeah. And so my internship was at the Career Services Center, uh, largely because like Central Washington University is in a really small town. It's Allensburg, Washington, and there were no like large, like government-funded mental health agencies in town. You would have had to like drive over the hill to Yakima, which is like forty-five minutes away, to get to yeah. the next like closest, you know, like mental health agency. Uh, or you could intern with the school, but then all the spots got filled. So I was just like, whatever, I'm going to do this like nice, easy thing with the Career Services Center, which was was fine. I learned some stuff about career counseling, and it was it was pretty okay. Did you feel like when you were going through that, did, did that make you want to be a career counselor now? Or did that kind of go, mm, this isn't my thing? I mean... It's all interesting because I really like the fundamental aspect for me is understanding the motivation of what people like what motivates people to do what they do um, Mm -hmm. and like how you change those behaviors. And like that underlying theme applies to any sort of counseling of just like career counseling, like relational counseling, family counseling, marriage and family therapy. Like, it's all there. It's all about the motivation, what makes them do what they're doing, and how can you work with them to better what they're doing or to have them have the outcome that they want. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. Like, motivation can help start a new behavior or uh, explains a behavior or it can end a behavior. Yeah. Um, behind you know unless someone's motivated they're not going to stop a behavior um or change won't happen until you know someone's feeling like oh i'm gonna do it on my own you know yeah i saw that even with during my practicum we would have a lot of um substance abuse users um right now a lot of them in the cleveland area it's Heroin is really cheap right now on the market. So mm. we had a lot of users, but until you, they came to a point and was like, you know what? I want help. No matter what I could do or what I could provide, they, you know, I'm not gonna, I can't do everything for them to get them clean mm-hmm. until they're motivated to do so. Yep. No, I mean, that's like a really important lesson that I think everybody in the helping profession you know, whether you're a social worker, a mental health therapist, an EMT, a paramedic, a doctor, like, I think a lot of the times people, and like, I got into the field because I could be like, I can help people if I just tell them what to do. And like, that's totally <laughs> not the point. Um, yeah. And like, you know, I got that knocked out of me pretty quick when I was in grad school. But yeah, you know, like, every once in a while, I'll like, come back in and I'm like, oh my God, I'm learning all these really new cool things. If only my clients would listen to me. It's like, ah, oh, that's not the point. <laughs> not how that's not how change happens it's all about like the internal locus of control and like the internal motivation because that's where the change comes from um Mm -hmm. like i don't know how familiar you are with like motivational interviewing or like the trans theoretical model of change but yeah those things those things are true um yeah okay well one of us is not familiar yeah actually and i think a lot of people would be interested in it do you want to go 
do a stab at uh, it? Yeah, sure. So, like, motivational interviewing is kind of like a specific way of speaking to someone to elicit change talk, which is basically just getting the other person to say out loud, like, I want to change this. This is what I want to do to change that to get to where I want to be. Um, and it's a lot of like identifying and like being okay with the ambiguity that the person is in. Uh, Cause a lot of the times people get stuck in this morass and like this quandary of, Oh, I, I want to change, but it's, it's scary and it's going to be hard. And like both of those emotions are really valid. Like they're both mm-hmm. like propelling or protecting the person of like, I want to change and I want to be safe. And right now I'm safe because change isn't happening and change is inherently scary. Whereas the change is like, oh, but you know, if we change, we'll be, we'll be better and we'll be where we want to be. And like, there's that ambiguity and that like ambivalence um, of like, oh, is the change going to be worth it? I don't know. Um, and so it's really just talking around and talking about where the person wants to be and trying to get them to say like, Oh yeah, you know I I, I want to change that and be like oh, like oh you do want to change that so like what do you want to change about it and they're like oh you know like I think I think I want to be less sad all the time and it's like oh yeah like man what can you do about being sad all the time like what do you want to do to be sad less and they're like oh well I noticed that I'm a lot less sad when I go outside and it's like oh that's so cool like that's a really great insight man you you're really in touch with your emotions right now. And you're really in touch with like, you know, your internal, your internal dialogue. Uh, That's so cool. Thank you so much for sharing. And you really like being outside and it makes you less sad and being less sad is something that you want to do. So what would get you to be outside more? And like, I don't know, maybe like going for a 10 minute walk every day. And like, oh, wow, you want to go for a 10 minute walk every day. That's great. When do you want to start doing that? And they're like, oh, like specifically, like, yeah, specifically, like, when do you want to start doing that? What time do you want to start doing that? And you try and like build this scaffold of change with them. Um, And you're not like telling them how to change. You're really trying to elicit the change that they want and then elicit the change mechanism in the way they want it to change. And yeah, I love motivational because interviewing because it's half of it is almost just asking questions you're asking the right questions you're listening and they kind of if you're doing it right they're doing all the work you can like watch their the gears in their mind working it out you're giving it a, a place to work it out and someone to listen to them and really someone can work through those things on their own you don't have to do a whole lot i mean you're just helping facilitate that conversation yeah yeah and um yeah i think like that facilitation is the really really key component um because a lot of people don't Mm -hmm. have the greatest insight or they don't know how to verbalize what their insights are and that's where the mental health professional comes in and says like let's explore it together um and maybe we can make it a little bit more clear for both of us uh yeah and that's like the really valuable thing that i've found with motivational interviewing and also like just the concept that everybody has the ability and the capacity to change for themselves and that the desire and the willingness to change themselves is one of the most important things uh in change uh yeah yeah um and then like the trans theoretical model of change is just like this idea that change is a spectrum 
and it's a progression of steps as opposed to just like something that happens overnight. Um, like there's the pre-contemplative stage, which is just saying like, I don't think there's any issue. I think I'm totally cool shooting up heroin eight days a week. Oh, there's not eight days in a week. Whatever, that doesn't matter. I'm okay. Um, they're on heroin. <laughs> exactly, they're on heroin. Doesn't matter. Uh, and then like the really contemplative stage is like, oh man, you know what? Like I'm on heroin all the time, and I never have money, and like all my teeth fell out. That kind of sucks. Maybe something's wrong. Like maybe maybe something could be different, and it could be better. Um, and then like it's it's pre-contemplative, contemplative, and then uh, oh man, what's the other one? Um, are you doing this from memory? Right yeah. Now? He is wow. a mental health You're professional. Real. You are a professional. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's what two years of school will get you. Uh, wow. <laughs> you, remember, you remember most of the trans theoretical model of change, and then you look up the rest of it on Google. Mm-hmm. Google. That is, like, everyone's best, yeah. you know. Okay. Oh, well, that's, I don't even know. Well, this is weird. They're adding, like, another step. Or maybe a step that I'm not familiar with yet. But so pre-contemplation, contemplation, uh, and then I guess there's this determination step, which I haven't heard about before. Um, but I'm guessing that it has something to do with like, oh, there is something that needs to happen. Okay, cool. Oh yeah, preparation. Like, oh, yeah. I'm I've contemplated it. I've decided that yeah, I want to do something. This is like me planning out the steps of my change. And then there's action where you actually like go and act on it. So the heroin addict from the story and their preparation step would be like, oh man, you know what? I need to like go to a different city and get away from these people who are part of my addiction circle, my addiction process. Um, I need to, you know, enroll in a drug rehab center and I need to call my parents and tell them that this is what I'm doing. So I won't contact them for a while or whatever. And like, the action step would be yeah. actually enrolling in the program, attending it, uh, and working through that process. And then there would be uh, maintenance and relapse. Um, and like one of the important parts about this is that relapse is included in the stage of change because everyone who's tried to change anything has, you know, failed. And gone through the process of like, oh, I'm back at, you know, where I was. This kind of sucks. Uh, which is like a really important conversation to have because there's so much shame around failure and there's so much um, discouragement that can happen when somebody is like, man, I was so close, and now I'm, like, you know, at the end again. Um, That one is so important, and that one, um, like, even with my schooling right now, it can be so passed over, And but it's such an important one mm -hmm. to consider, and I don't know. I feel like I, in my schooling right now, that one's one that easily goes, oh, yeah, relapse. It happens. Okay, now moving along. And you're like, oh, that's actually a pretty big deal. Like, that's a giant, like, speed bump that many, every, like, most people will encounter. We should probably talk about it and know a little bit yep, more about it. I agree. You graduate. You're a mental health professional. Oh, so I'm not actually graduated yet. So I finished my two years. I did my internship. Um, and then it took okay. me like a year and a half to finish my thesis, like afterward, um, which is like sort of typical and like sort of not. It's like 50-50. Like half of my cohort finished it while they were still in school and the other half finished it like a year or two years later. Um, it kind of just like depends. And like for me, uh, well, it feels almost like a PhD program. 
like PhD programs have like a couple more years to them, and like they're they don't do theses; they do dissertations, um, and that's kind of like a whole other beast. And yeah. like, thank God I didn't do a dissertation because like the thesis almost ended me. Like the only reason I finished was because my professors took pity on me, and they were like, "Hey, Jace, you can just like like write this like paper with the research that this professor's already done." I'm like, "Cool, great." And then the professor's like, yeah, and I'm going to do, like, all this data analysis for you. And then all you have to do is write this section. I'm like, great, I can do that. Can you explain to me what all these numbers mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so, yeah, eventually I finished. So I was I went down to Klamath Falls, and I was a peer mentor on, like, a – what's it called? Um, man, it was an inpatient residential treatment program uh, on a farm. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so that was really interesting. And sorry, just so the timeline is correct. I had two years of graduate coursework done, and then while I was working on this farm, this is when I was working on my thesis. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, but I really wasn't working on it while I was on the farm. I was working on my thesis like the last three, like month and a half of my time on the farm, and then I finished it. <laughs> and then I finished it after uh, my time on the farm was done, because <laughs> I was gotcha. like, don't have this farm shit to do anymore. I guess I should do my thesis. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that was actually a really cool modality of therapy because it's based around behavioral activation, uh, parallel play, parallel work. Um, it had like a lot of really, really cool like psychological modalities going on. Uh, where gotcha. we did group work, we did individual therapy, we did mentoring, um, and we did uh, personal responsibilities and skill building. Uh, but essentially, yeah. so my role there as a peer mentor, uh, I worked with these students on the farm for like, you know, usually eight to 10 hour shifts. Um, and the students would all have like assigned chores and they would have a schedule that they had to complete throughout the day of, you know, these are my chores for the morning. These are the groups and like my times for therapy. Um, and Sounds like a really neat program. It is a really, really cool program. Um the only, the only, yeah, and so, really cool program. This one was specifically for like well-off people because the tuition was about six thousand dollars a month. Um, wow. Oh yeah. Gosh. So it's 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 for people. It's for young adults, eighteen to twenty-four, who are transitioning from, uh, like wilderness therapy, uh, okay. to real life, as we would call it. Uh, so basically, it's all these young adults, eighteen to twenty-four, who had really, really severe. Uh, behavior issues that their parents just didn't want to deal with anymore and so the parents like ultimatum usually was like oh you know go to this program or we're going to kick you out and you can't have any more of our money um gotcha. yeah and so it's kind of this weird situation where all of these students had a choice to be there or not but it was also kind of a really shitty choice and so most of them had that feeling of being mandated and being forced to be there which yeah. you know in essence they kind of were they were at least coursed to be there so um yeah sometimes the students weren't excited or thrilled <laughs> to say the least no. um yeah i feel like there probably was a transition did you see a transition for some of these youth like it felt like they were forced and then they came up like halfway through their time going oh you know what i actually like it or yeah, was it yeah. did you find that not often the case i mean it's like very subjective as it happens with most yeah. things that are revolving around humans like some people were like stoked to be there like oh this is great i'm just with like other other bunch of other people who are like the same age as me 
and kind of have like the same issues and we're all like going through the same shit this is cool um Mm -hmm. and then there are other people who are like man this is bullcrap i was living the life and now i'm here and like there's not even a walmart this is (laughs) bullcrap who wants to live in this podunk town this is stupid um yeah yeah and then there's also the people who started out like i'm sort of uncertain slash i hate it and then they kind of transitioned or like they slowly grew to like buy into the program for the most part um and and it was really really cool to see students like mature and change um and like there was one student that i worked with uh who suffered from panic attacks uh and like pretty severe ones where they would end up like curled up into a fetal position just crying like underneath a bench somewhere in the house because they had a bad conversation with their parents um and yeah just like some pretty rough stuff and like they're one of my personal mentees and like i remember like you know talking them through a couple panic attacks and we talked a lot about um like the valid elements of emotions and the maladaptive element of emotions because one of the therapeutic perspectives that i operate from is called internal family systems therapy uh, which is just this idea that our intrapsychic landscape is split up between a bunch of different parts and all those parts have different jobs and different ideas and different ways of dealing and accomplishing their ideas and jobs and sometimes those ways of handling a situation were developed when you were like two or three and it looks like throwing a tantrum or not talking to somebody or stealing something or you know yelling and getting pissed off Uh, so like not the most maladaptive way to deal with the situation but it's what you know and because those were developed when you were like three or five and maybe for whatever reason they just never got changed over the years and that's still your, your reaction it's just, yeah. it's still this part of you um, that's trying to do a healthy thing by protecting you, um, but it's just doing it in an unhealthy way. And a lot of times when a client comes to me and they say, like, I just really hate that I do this. I hate this part of my brain, and I hate that I feel this way. Like, I view that as saying I hate myself because mm-hmm. this part of me is influencing me and making me do these things um or like this is the reaction from this part of me um and a lot of times you know the way we perceive the world are influenced by you know our lived experiences and so if somebody has a lived experience of constantly being threatened um then they're going to go through life thinking everybody's threatening them and maybe they really really Mm -hmm. dislike that and it's like, God, I just wish I could, you know, be less anxious around people and not think that they're trying to, you know, always punch me. Um, and like, I really hate the fact that I think that people are going to punch me, even though I know they're not. And it's like, well, like that was a very adaptive part of you at some point. Um, it kept you safe when it needed to. Uh, and now you want it to change. And yeah. instead of rejecting that part, the way to heal that and the way to change that is by accepting that part and kind of coming alongside it and saying like, man, you know, this is really rough what we went through, but we didn't know any better. And now we do. So if you can step aside and let me think of a new way to handle these situations, I would like that. And so it's a lot about self-compassion and self-talk and uh, really identifying internal negative thinking strategies and internal negative 
um, automatic thoughts and then being compassionate towards them and being like, you had a purpose and you did a really good job and now you can step back because I've got this. Yeah. This is such a kind way of thinking about yourself. Yes, giving yourself a break. Yeah. I feel like, Mm -hmm. like loving yourself and going, you know what? This was a like a survival tool at this time of your life or you know and it's okay Mm -hmm. i guess yeah i mean i would i would highly recommend it uh to anybody who's like starting on the field it's just like a really really kind and compassionate way of interacting with yourself and then teaching it to clients and like having them identify those parts um can help them really really get a handle of what's going on and it kind of externalizes the problem um because it's not like you're not crazy it's just this part of you that has this idea that this is how it should react and that's like maladaptive but yeah it's 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 a whole thing and i really like it um in any case uh man yeah i remember talking to the client about that a lot and identifying the valid parts of their emotional responses and their responses and then identifying the maladaptive parts of yeah, it's really scary and it sucks a lot when your parents tell you that they can't love you because you're thinking about transitioning from male to female. Um, mm-hmm. Like, what can you do about that? Like, so this part, you know, is trying to protect you and, you know, it's been protecting you from your parents for a really long time and it does it by uh, shutting down and saying, like, it can't hurt me if I'm, you know, unaware of what's happening around me, which is... yeah you know, just like fight, flight, freeze. Um, but yeah. Uh, and it's like, oh, I guess I can handle it differently by like, you know, talking to that part of me and saying like, it is rough what my parents are doing to me. And I'm going to try and handle it differently by telling them how it makes me feel. And it's like, yeah, and like that happened and like that specific client and they went from having like a panic attack every couple like every couple of weeks to being one of the leaders in the program. That was my question. I was like, I just curious, like, was, did they figure out techniques to help them with those panic attacks? Yeah. Yeah. And their, their relationship with their parents improved drastically once they were like honest with their parents and like, I never really felt like you loved me that much. And this is how I dealt with it. Yeah. It was super intense and like, just, yeah, really, really proud of that individual and like all the work that they did. Um, yeah there are there are other people there are other people in the program that like got kicked out because they were just way too intense for the container that we had um like there's somebody with borderline personality disorder who just lied constantly and gaslit every single like employee and person there and like they just he just made everyone doubt everything that they were doing and it was like yeah yeah we can't have you here (laughs) sorry man (laughs) like this isn't the right container for you. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so like we, we had a couple, we had a couple students every now and again, who'd be like, you're causing too much of a disturbance to either staff or other students. Like we need you to leave. But that wasn't that often. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in any case, my time there got cut short after like, I don't know. They had a weird thing where like the farm work was supposed to be done with the students but more often than okay. not, the students would refuse to do it. And so then, <laughs> and so then, like, you know, the peer mentors were like, oh, it's your job to make sure the chickens don't die. Like, you should probably go feed them. But also, you need to make sure that the students don't, like, hurt each other. 
And also, you need to be there for the students if they have an emotional breakdown. You need to talk to somebody. But also, you, you need you need to go water the field, and and you need to cut the grass, and and you need to go like mow everything down with a tractor. And if the tractor breaks, then you need to figure that out too. And it's like it was like so many different jobs, and not that much support that it was not a good fit. Gotcha. Yeah, I was gonna ask like when you, I mean, this kind of even builds on it because I was just gonna ask when we were just talking about a specific person, but like. I would think if I was counseling someone, I would get very emotionally invested in their situations and have a really hard time setting not, boundaries. Yeah, like setting the boundaries and then not getting like I'm a big sympathy crier and I get I just like could get I could I think it would be hard to not get too like in it I guess emotionally. Yeah, where involved. you aren't. Yeah, where you're not able to be a like to be a good objective like ear for them anymore. How do you navigate that? Yeah, so so navigating a little bit of like uh oh man, what's it even called? Like um not projection, but um oh man, what you take on your clients' issues and then client takes on your issues. I'll I'll remember it in a bit. Um, thank you. Uh, navigating your own emotional well-being as a counselor. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think to touch on something that you mentioned of like sympathy crier and uh, not taking on too much of the client's stuff. Um, I think like the empathy is totally like true and it should be represented and if that looks like crying with your client like that's fine mm-hmm. um, like I think that's like fine yeah I think there can be like some shame about that maybe like oh I'm a mental health professional I'm supposed to hold my shit in and like you know be be 100% uh, emotionally regulated at all times and that's just not true yeah. um, like I've definitely shed some tears with some clients before and um, like I think having that realness to the relationship makes it so much better and so much more therapeutic. Um, like as, as a, as a therapist, if I have an issue with a client, like if I have an issue with something they said, um, then I'm going to go ahead and kind of have that conversation with them. Cause it's a little bit about modeling of this is how adults interact. Uh, mm-hmm. If you say something that offends me, I'm going to tell you um, and I'm not going to make you feel bad about it. Uh, but we're going to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that's more appropriate than other times. Usually after you actually have a relationship with the client, like you should probably have some rapport and like preface that with some stuff as opposed to like first session being like, oh man, you know, you said this and I don't like it. Like, no, that's not, that's not the appropriate time to do that. (laughs) Not at all. Um, a lot of people's portrayal of counselors, if you think of like the old cartoons, you have this guy laying on a couch and the counselor being motion, like faceless you know like an emotionless statue just taking notes that's and what that's, i was thinking and I, I think that's a portrayal that we forget that is not really re- and there's not very many out there that <laughs> can do that or have be successful as a counselor with yeah, that it yeah. really does require your connection now there's uh, definitely boundaries that you're yeah. definitely gonna have to set and there is, you got to take care of your, if you're coming into your, with your client with all this emotional baggage and then you're crying nonstop for the entire session, well, then maybe you need to like go 
This is why I cannot be a counselor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, well, um, the like the sympathetic or empathetic crying, yes. But if you have your own baggage in the in the counseling room or whatever, uh, then like, I mean, I think most counselors have some amount of skills and some amount of tools they can use to regulate themselves. Like, I'm a really big fan of uh, doing some deep breathing and like doing a little bit of yoga beforehand, like just like a few quick poses, just like the greeting the sun, like, and being intentional with my internal monologue of like, I'm trying to focus myself for my client so that they can see themselves more clearly. And that's my goal. And like, that really helps a lot. Even if I'm a little bit dysregulated, say, because I had some clients cancel on me and I'm trying to like, think of, I have to go and call them and like trying to reschedule with them throughout the rest of the week. And man, that's irritating. And why are clients <laughs> like that sometimes? <laughs> it's like, dang it. Um, you know, or like, you know, the more personal issues, like today, uh, I kind of had to take a step back a couple of times and be like, man, I'm getting really anxious because this girl from Bumble's not texting me back. <laughs> it's like oh, no. a little irritating. Um, <laughs> I'm like, all right, okay. Like I'm putting a lot of, uh, I'm putting a lot of weight on this conversation and it's, impacting how I'm interacting with this client. I can uh, take a couple deep breaths and realize that it's okay if this doesn't happen. I'm still gonna yeah. be I'm still gonna be all right. Um and so quickly touching on Sarah's question uh as boundaries, some of the more important things that I found for myself are uh let's see um not taking the client's outcome as an indication of my ability mm. yeah so if i'm like working really hard and like doing all these counselor things and the client's just not changing it's really easy for me to be like oh i guess i'm just shit at my job uh i yeah but yeah and it's it's not um there's so much in counseling that has to do with the other person um and how they're perceiving what you're saying or how they're thinking about the questions you're asking. And, uh, and it kind of gets back to that overarching point of the change comes from them, not from me. I'm yeah. just there to help them explore the change um, and explore the process of like, oh man, I never thought about how much, you know, that interaction with that one person screwed me up back when I was five. Like, but yeah, now that I look back on it, like I can trace a bunch of stuff back to this thing. It's like, oh man, yeah, we should probably talk about that. Um, yeah. yeah, I think if we offer the success of our clients on ourselves, no one would be able to do the job. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Being near, it would be impossible. I mean, yeah. everyone would just go home yep. horribly depressed. Yep. Because you don't always find success, and nope. it is very often not. Uh, you have depending on the field and depending on who you're working with. You might have a very low percentage of success. Yep. Um, yep. So. Very much true. Very much true. Uh, Sarah, was there anything else you wanted to touch on from that, or do we even come close to answering the question? Or you did come close to answering the question, but it did just make me think of a second thing. So since you prompted Ooh, me, I'm gonna... shooting right back. Okay. So one thing sometimes we've told, like in conversations on this podcast with people we've interviewed, we've talked to people who have done. Uh, like look for a therapist and they've maybe gone through a few different ones before they find someone they really click with. And uh, of course, we're always like, yeah, that's totally fine. But 
But from your perspective, have you ever had that happen where you have a client where you're like, I don't think I'm the best fit for this person? Does it hurt your feelings? I just want to hear the other half of that. Oh, the other half of it? Like, how does the therapist interpret slash take as a client saying, like, I'm going to go to somebody else? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, I got to say, it hasn't really happened to me too much yet. But at my new at my new job, at my new job, that's like what my first client did to me. Um, like they were this youth in transition from male to female, um, mm-hmm. and that specific piece of demographic information like isn't relevant at all. It's just kind of like the first thing that pops into my head when I'm thinking about them. Um, mm-hmm. But let's see, like they sat in my office for a grand total of ten minutes uh like the three sentences they said were can i leave now can i leave now can i leave now (laughs) and i was like i mean yeah it was it was rough and it was just like you know holding that boundary of yes you can leave now and also that's your choice and i'm not gonna like tell you that that's what you should do because it's a choice you have to make for yourself and like here are these other choices you can make like we can sit here and not talk we can sit here and talk we can sit here and talk about anything or we can like sit here and color like we can do all those things or you can leave like that's a choice you can make and they eventually just walked out of my office and then told their mom that i made them feel uncomfortable which was weird and like like a little hard to hear uh, mm-hmm. yeah and then they requested a different counselor and it's great because this person is getting a lot of really great help from this other counselor. And for whatever reason, like we just didn't vibe. And it was like, all right. Um, and so I definitely will admit, or I will own a little bit of, not a little bit. Uh, I think, especially because it was like my first client in a new job, I had quite a bit of like ego slash, you know, insecurity about it. Mm-hmm. of like am I going to be capable of doing this job if my first client ever just like walked out on me that was rough uh, it was very much of like did I do something wrong like all I did was offer to color with them and like I didn't even ask them about their emotions yet <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even get to the good stuff um, but so speaking to Sarah's thing of do therapists sometimes or all the time or maybe never take it personally and feel bad about themselves if a client leaves i would say yes oh yeah as a social worker for sure i've had a couple of people who are like i don't want to is there i would like to talk to the other social worker which sometimes often the case depending on who the client is if they're a rather difficult client i'm like sure (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like you go talk to them to your heart's content i don't know uh... i love that you know what let me get you a name but it, yeah i feel like you do have a little bit of a pride in this thing like you're like what do you mean i'm not good enough you know i don't know of course you have a where I really thought that that whole thing was going to go was Where like, like in a no, we don't take it personally. We want you to get the best care because I know myself, I'm so non-confrontational that thinking that the counselor I want to leave is actually going to take it personally would make me feel like I couldn't leave because it would be impolite. Oh. <laughs> uh, actually, what I was really okay. you would say was, no, 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 it's always fine. Well, it is fine. It's also going to be like, 
I will say, I will say, it's always fine. I got over it. Um, he just cried himself to sleep that night, Sarah. That's- yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so I think the getting over it process um, can differ from therapist to therapist. Like, I'm very new to the field. Um, I have maybe a little bit more insecurity about jobs than some other brand new therapists because of my, like, job history. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. So I was a social worker for about two and a half months. Oh. And that didn't work out very well either, <laughs> which was unfortunate. I was a medical social worker, and so I just like talked to insurance companies all day and like tried to get it so my clients didn't get evicted from their apartments. Gotcha. Um, so it was like a job I really didn't like, and it was very unfortunate because I got about two and a half hours of counseling there in like the two and a half months I worked there. Oh gosh. Yeah. And, like, when I initially, like, was interviewing for the position, they were very excited about, like, yeah, we want a mental health therapist. We already have a social worker, but we want somebody who's, like, you know, really specialized and focused on mental health because we want to offer that to our clients. I was, like, great. That's what I want to do. You know, tell them to come to me and talk to me about whatever, like, you know, suicide, depression, anxiety, end-of-life stuff. Like, I'm here. Like, I'll learn. I'll I'll talk to them about all the emotions. And then I was, like, oh, actually, you're just going to do case management. And I was, like, this sucks. <laughs> Case management yeah. can be soul-sucking. It definitely yeah. is soul-sucking. Yeah. yeah, and so that one ended up not being a good fit either. Um, and so like when I when I had this first client just like walk out on me, it kind of triggered a bunch of that like shame of like, I guess I'm where where is my good fit in this counseling world? Like I have this master's degree, and so far like the two jobs I've had haven't been that great. Mm-hmm. Um, and like this is maybe like a little confirmation bias of like that internal shame monster saying like, oh, I guess maybe counseling is not your thing. And so like I had a decent reaction to it, um, but then I also kind of quickly like you know went back around and debriefed with my coworkers, and they're like, no, that sometimes happens. Um, and I think the more experienced you get as a counselor, and like just like in life in general, the more you're able to handle rejection and life not going your way because you have more resiliency and more hope about like, oh, this didn't work out, but this is just one instance of something not working out. This isn't an indication of like the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, Imply more confidence in yourself. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so, and so I would definitely say that, you know, therapists are prone to the same foibles and the same uh, proclivities towards self-doubt that anyone has. Um, I think that we have more tools and more understanding of what we're doing to ourselves. Um, and I think there's an understanding within the counseling profession that sometimes your clients and you just aren't going to click and that's part of it and that's okay. Yeah. I feel like this is a perfect time to ask you, what is your new job? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a great segue from kind of like the dark and dreary, I had two jobs, they didn't work out. Uh, <laughs> to now I have this new job and I'm really, really excited about it. Uh, So I'm a mental health therapist with a local agency in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, We work with uh, high acuity youth. Um, So right now I'm working from eight years old up to 18 years old. Um, And I love it. Uh, Like it's challenging in good ways so far. Uh, it's really interesting because I'll have like a lot of anxiety throughout the day as like I'm building up to my sessions of like 
don't fuck up, Jace. Like, don't <laughs> let me find out more. Uh, and just, like, you know, uncertainty. Like, the biggest thing is, like, uncertainty about what's going to happen in the session. Um, and then, like, once I'm in the session, it's just, like, pretty smooth sailing. And then even if the session wasn't that smooth, I'm always, like, able to look back and be like, oh, you know what, like, that didn't work out that well. And also, I handled it this way, and that's pretty kick-ass. Um, and I've been able to see my clients, like, mesh with me really, really well in some cases. Uh-huh. And there are some that, like, I haven't quite, you know, vibed with yet, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so I, I work with eight-year-olds, like, eight-year-olds and up. I'm going to get a six-year-old uh, in, like, the next month or so. And so I'm learning all about play therapy, and I'm doing a lot of uh, different things that I wouldn't necessarily have construed as classical counseling. Because mm-hmm. um, in, in my head, like counseling is like sitting in two chairs that are like at slight angles to each other. So you're not actually like confronting the person, but you know, you're like sitting side by side. So actually, I, I, I do really like keeping the lights low in my office. I think it has a more warm and ambient vibe. And so I have, like, a salt lamp diffuser that I have and just, like, a couple lamps. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. And so I work with um, a bunch of young to almost adults. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. And, yeah, just learning a whole bunch of new stuff. Uh, one of the biggest things I'm learning right now, because we're working with high-acuity youth, the two largest diagnoses of the population that I work with are PTSD and oppositional defiant disorder. Um, and just like listening to my coworkers and going to all these intakes and hearing all these themes and like, like having my coworkers who have been doing like this specific work for like four plus years, they're like, yeah, like pretty much everything is PTSD. Like yes. if you think about it, yeah. um, yeah, which is something that I'm really coming to believe myself, uh, is that like PTSD is a very, very. I guess not invasive, but like subversive thing that for a really long time, most of our culture has been just associated with, you know, really, really tra- tragic events um, yeah. like war and uh, natural disasters or terrorist attacks or um, like really, really stark of like, oh, you just, you saw someone kill somebody in front of you uh, or like somebody physically abused you or somebody sexually abused you. Um, but there's also a lot more to the spectrum of trauma than just like a physical or like straight up death. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like, the agency I work in right now, they do a lot of trauma informed therapy and trauma therapy. And it mm-hmm. is really interesting because um, one of the heads of the agency was like, he thinks like he's very um that's what he's passionate about is trauma-based therapy um and it's just fascinating i mean if you think about all the probably similar to the ptsd a lot of the problems are linked back to these you know times of traumatic events in people's lives yep yep Like, 100%. And, um, like, the more I look about it, like, the more I think about it, the more I look at it and, like, examine my own experience and, like, see where I'm at, I'm like, oh, yeah, dude, trauma, totally. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and like the more I look to clients and I see like how their trauma informs their actions, I'm like, oh, yeah, it makes total sense. Like definitely PTSD. Uh, like it's coming out as anxiety or it's coming out as depression. And also like the way your brain acts like that, like that's because of PTSD. Like that's because your brain had a trauma response and it never quite figured out a way to rewire itself around that negative event. So it just kind of like rewired itself into that negative event. Yeah, there's there's a lot of fascinating research on it. It's it's really cool. That is really cool. Jace, I wanted to end this podcast with we do this one last thing of what is something you do to help with your anxiety? And I know you talked about you do some yoga and you do breathing exercises. But what is your go-to, and if you want to repeat that again, that's totally fine. But is there a go-to thing that you do that you can share with the world that you do to combat anxiety? Uh, Yes. So I think my previous go-tos were to like watch TV and eat food and read books, and those definitely didn't work. So through a process of trial and error that occurred over like 20 years, I was like, oh, those aren't actually that helpful. Um, And then I discovered that I really benefit from journaling. Um, Like a little bit of my like ADHD, PTSD brain is just like, I can't handle thinking about all these things at once. And it's really anxious if I forget anything. So therefore I just write everything down and then I don't forget it and I have it and like a very specific, very like concrete, I can't forget this. I can just look at it again and don't have to worry about um, misplacing something or like not remembering something later. That's um, fascinating. Journaling. Yeah, nobody but, said journaling. Yeah. So you're the first journaler. And it totally is. I heard people suggest it as a way to reduce anxiety, but you're definitely the first one of the people we've talked to who has suggested that one. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just found that it works really, really well with me. I have kind of like a visual processing brain. And so if I can mm-hmm. write something down and then I can read it, it just helps me process it so much better and so much more clear. And then it also has the additional benefit of like, oh man, I'm actually thinking that. That's kind of fucked up. Okay. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like when you're thinking it, you're maybe like I'm not maybe as aware of it as if I write it down. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm really like I'm being really mean to myself. Yeah. Okay. And we're back. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I say that back from an interview, I always have Sarah. I look over to Sarah to my right. And it always looks like a deer in headlights, just like not knowing how to react to that. There's no easy transition there. There's just nothing. You gotta get wild. Like David Dobrik wild. Speaking of David Dobrik, Sarah's (laughs) not a fan of David Dobrik. I showed her a David Dobrik YouTube yesterday night right before bed and I really have never felt so judged in my life where I felt like I was getting less sexy as the video came on and I felt like my wife was thinking I was less and less intelligent does that stop me from watching David Dobrik no it won't but I just don't understand I don't understand his humor this is just a YouTube guy who's somehow really famous I 
don't think I've only watched probably three videos of his all the way through ever, and I just see zero appeal. To well, put it lightly, to say this on the opposite end, I, David, if you want to be friends, I will totally be friends. We can leave Sarah at home. I just and don't I will it. join the blog game. I just the don't vlog. Get it. The vlog. He calls it the vlog game. The vlog squad. Yes, I know it, David. We're best friends. See, vlog squad. I can be the newest member. I already am just. Ugh. Whatever. That's how I feel about it. What's our freaking factoid? Okay, our freaking factoid we learned this week after a little research, and it has to do with our sweet puppers, because we thought, why don't we bless this dog with a little waiting pool? Because, as you remember from our last factoid, he's a Newfoundland. And Lake Erie is disgusting. Yeah, disgusting. Where like water. Little floating tampons, dead fish. Everything. Condoms, used condoms. Okay, don't elaborate too much. But it's gross. Our, our poor families on more. the West Coast, they're going to be like, what is this? It's, it's not actually like What that. is Cleveland doing? It's not that gross. I mean, it's gross, but it's, it's gross great. enough that I don't want to take my dog to wade through that water all the time, but it's also like not that gross. So we decide. Kitty pool. Kitty pool. Doggy pool. Doggy pool. How expensive. I remember going to the store with my mom. And often passing those little plastic pools. You know, those like blue pools that are like a foot tall. Yeah. And begging every year, mom, mom. And we actually had, I remember growing up with a couple of them when I grew up. But I, so I don't know. The hard plastic, they crack after a year. They crack after a year, but they are That's all you need. Um, It's like a possible. Environmental reasons though, sweetheart. Should we just dig a pool? <laughs> it was, I mean, what's the solution? What's the environmentally friendly solution? I'm just solution saying that's there? a lot of plastic, probably. Probably. Let's just take him to the nasty lake instead. <laughs> For the environment, <laughs> we'll let our dog get whatever, Giardia or whatever. Gonorrhea. No, it's not gonorrhea. <laughs> okay, so here's the actual factoid. Dog pools are like $400. Stupid expensive. And here's the And problem. also those little pools that we were just talking about with if you were also the same age as us and grew up around that same time, they don't exist anymore. We cannot find them. We <laughs> went to Walmart. We went to Target. Those are the only two places. Well, nope. Home Depot. Home Depot. We went to... Those are the only three. I've gone to Marks looking for them. I've looked at Ziggy. This Marks are tiny yeah. marks. Well, okay, well, they have on. bras and lingerie. You think they would maybe Marks have... is like one step up from a gas station. So. It's more like a Kmart crap quality. Maybe, maybe. I feel like... That's generous. <laughs> so, no. We none of the stores stop. in the Cleveland area right now. If you guys know where to get one of these plastic pools, you're from Cleveland... Tell in us. the Cleveland metro area, shout out to us because we're desperate. Because back to you, Sarah. Here's we a can't report. find one because no, we can't I meant find them. the other pools. <laughs> okay, no, like I said, the other pools are actually not exaggerating. I found a dog pool that was four hundred dollars. The real they actually is, fit the requirements. The for problem us too. is that Bentley, our dog, is so tall that when he lay, for him to be able to just lay in the water, that's all I want for him to be able to like lay down. It needs to be like 
Like six five foot. and a half feet long. More, more like a six foot. I don't think six foot. He's not taller than he me. He wants to stretch out his Oh my gosh. You are driving me crazy. Probably <laughs> five and a half feet. But five and a half feet in a pool means it's a five and a half foot diameter. So it's a big circle. It's huge. That's a big ass circle. It's a pretty big. It's also hard to get that into any either of our cars. Right. So then we were like, we'll find an oval pool. There aren't really oval pools that don't have, like, the inflatable sides. Where they're, and like, he's gonna, squishy. He's going to pop an inflatable pool. So then you look up actual dog pool, like, pools made for giant dog breeds. And, yes, They see is, you coming. They, they exist. Know, they know they have a niche in the market. Yes, they and, do, but and, we're not going to get one. It's nuts. Like, we found this one that's, like, shaped as a dog bone. We're, like... Perfect. It's like super. It's like made out of the stuff that's made it that makes up truck bed. Lines. Yeah, it looks perfect. It also has in the picture of the like of the like the online Ooh. website what? thing what are you is a giant mastiff. So the, you're yeah. like, oh, my dog's gonna fit. Perfect. No. No. Well, maybe. Probably. Maybe. Actually, that would be perfect. We'll never know because it's four hundred dollars. Yes. Are we just cheap skates? No, or is no. this who buys a four hundred dollar pool for I, a dog? I don't know. People richer than us. So then my idea was what if we go get one of those like cattle like cattle? Yeah, so pe- then I was looking at like those aluminum basins, like a feed trough basically <laughs> for the dog to lay in. But those are also the size that we need. It's like it doesn't matter. It's expensive it's, no matter what. We're still looking at two fifty. Too fitty. Who are you? <laughs> David Dobrik. Stop. Call me. I just hate it. I just hate it so much. Yes. So we are really struggling and we don't know what to do. So any ideas on the good, not $400 pool for your We were actually dog? considering, the most recent consideration was we, there's like a resale place with like. <laughs> oh yeah. There's like a, it's called like Rebuilders Exchange and it's literally like. Uh, stuff from old houses, like doors and windows and old doorknobs. I was like, Sarah, do we just get a tub? There are clawfoot tubs <laughs> that have been like taken out of like houses. But then they are gonna they're be just, super just, heavy and kind of expensive. Still. And expensive. And where are we gonna stick it? Like and that's exactly. a giant thing. Do we to put have the to tub store. in the driveway? Do we put it in the front yard? You know, like how some people, I. There was only one family who I knew in my parents' neighborhood who had a toilet, which then like they health. put in the yard. Yes. And it like held plants. It was it like looks, part of the garden. I'm sorry. Very so strange. bad. So, very strange. I, there's some words I want to say, but I'm not going to say them. Um, they just, it's trashy. It's a it's trashy look. Crappy. <laughs> <laughs> this is why Sarah wouldn't have been invited. Oh, would I want to be invited? No. So... That is our freaking factoid. Doggy pools are freaking expensive. I guess if you had a dog who weighed five yeah, pounds. Yeah, no, they're only expensive when you need a human-sized dog pool. So big doggy pools are freaking expensive. Because any other size dog, it probably doesn't matter. We just don't want our giant dog. We want him to be able to lay down. We don't want it to be giant. And we don't want him to pop it yeah. or scratch it. So we have a kind of a mission for you it's a go for this me. week <laughs> is to find us a doggy pool that would fit all of our needs yes, he please. needs six feet long i don't think, I don't think he so. needs probably two and a half feet deep 
two and, and a half feet deep. <laughs> I want it so that when he lays down, it's over his head. <laughs> Maybe six feet deep, so he can really swim. <laughs> and we are also thinking in ground, so find us a and place. And jets. And jets. jets. He really likes the jets. Jets everywhere. All the jets. All the jets. So if That's you all. find us something... For $100 or less, <laughs> we will send you signed merch from me and Sarah. Yeah, I would do that. Yeah. One of those. We can do one of Bentley's bandanas. Oh. We can have Bentley sign it. We can have Bentley start to chew it. And drool on and it. And drool on it. We'll sign it. We'll send it to you as a thank so, you. just letting you know, that is an opportunity of a lifetime. But also to clarify, it doesn't actually need to be six feet long. Probably just five or five and a half. Bentley's <laughs> and tall, And maybe a foot deep. Maybe. Yeah, that's all. Maybe foot and a half. No. If you're feeling generous. Yeah, sure. So click to so subscribe. <laughs> um, email us at allinyourheadpod at Find us on Facebook. And... <laughs> and that's it. That is that. Thanks, Jace, for being on this podcast. Yep. See you next week. <laughs> Bye. Bye.